This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 361. This podcast is brought to you by UCAN. UCAN's patented super starch has the remarkable ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking your blood sugar levels, to endure longer in training, and to keep your hunger in check. Visit UCAN.co and use the code MTA Challenge to save 20% on your order. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Trevor. A little bit unusual introduction here. I am actually sitting in a hotel room in Slovenia at the moment. I just uh, ran a marathon in Italy, hopped over here to Slovenia because it was close by. I'm at Lake Bled, which is a gorgeous place, about 55 kilometers from the capital, Ljubljana. I look forward to getting back home to my studio office and recording a full race recap of my marathon. In the meantime, we have this awesome interview with Lisa Tomati, just a renowned runner from New Zealand. She might be New Zealand's best known ultra runner. She's been on the scene for 25 years, running some of the toughest races around the world, like the Marathon de Sable, uh, the Badwater 135, and uh, the list of her accomplishments is quite extensive. She's actually done over 140 ultras, and she's very candid about her struggles with self-esteem, with body image, depression. She also says she's not naturally talented and has struggled with asthma, but she's had to force herself to learn how to keep pushing the limits. So that's what this conversation is all about, pushing the limits. There's a lot of interesting twists and turns in our conversation, and we appreciate Lisa just keeping it real. And of course, we have an awesome uh, listener question that we're going to feature at the end. So stay tuned for a question about healthy snacks that'll help keep your hunger in check between meals. And I like to just give a Quick word of thanks to UCAN for sponsoring this episode. I used their fueling source, uh, their snack bars, in fact, at my marathon, and I didn't bonk. Uh, it was an extremely tough race, but my energy levels were stable. Of course, they have snack bars, drink mix, and gels, as well as electrolyte source. And you can get a 20% discount if you use our special code, MTA Challenge. If you go to UCAN.co forward slash MTA, use the code MTA Challenge to get 20% off. All right, so here's our pre-recorded uh, conversation with ultra runner and fellow podcast host, Lisa Tomati. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Lisa Tomati from New Zealand. Lisa, it's an honor to have you on the MTA podcast. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. It's just fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed having you on my show, so that was really cool. And now, reverse. <laughs> That's right. We love doing podcaster meetups. So I think we first heard about you uh, from a movie we watched back in the day, Desert Runners. We've looked into a lot of your running career. It's, it's extremely fascinating. So it's an honor to finally speak with you. Maybe we can go back to the beginning. You can tell us, how did you get started running ultras? <laughs> That's a really long story. How long have we got, Trevor? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, doing Desert Runners um, briefly, that was so cool. and was really exciting to be in that project. Um, I started doing ultras. Um, I actually did a, I was at an adventure sort of, kid and, and loved outdoors and, and doing all that sort of stuff and a gymnast when I was a child 
And then when I was um, in my early 20s, I had this boyfriend who was a really extreme athlete and he was amazing, like super talent. And we spent like five years uh, traveling around the world and uh, on bicycles and trekking and climbing mountains and Hmm. canoeing and kayaking and doing all that sort of good stuff. And that sort of was a boot camp for five years, basically, for me. <laughs> um, it, it was a, I'll, I'll just say what it was, it was a really abusive relationship and it turned out to be not so pleasant. And mm. um, the entire time I was sort of being told all the time that you're useless and you're hopeless and you never amount to anything and you're wow. not a good runner and you're not a good athlete. And and so over, over time, you know, these things happen over time that you start to slowly lose more and more of yourself and your self-confidence and your identity. At the same time, we were doing all these travels and I was being pushed to my limits physically all the time. And he was always bitterly disappointed at how useless I was. And so um, this actually culminated, we ended up doing a crossing of the Libyan desert. Now, this was an expedition, not a, not a running race. And it was a four, four people, 250 kilometers across a piece of the, the Libyan desert, um, a military barred zone. We weren't allowed to be there. It was illegal. And we had to carry our entire everything on our backs, including all our water supply and stuff for the entire distance, right, as you do. And um, so we had, like, I had a 35-kilo backpack, and at the time I weighed, like, 58 kilos or something, 58, 59 kilos. Um, So that was, you know, two-thirds of my body weight. And uh, it was pretty much on the limits because uh, we had to carry 20 litres of water because we only had – we had a, a time period of a maximum 10 days. We were hoping to get through in, in a shorter time. So we only had two litres of water a day to drink. And if you can imagine trying to cover 45 kilometres a day with 35 kilos on your backpack with two litres of water and a 40 degree plus temperature, and you've got a narcissistic controlling boyfriend who's telling you you're hopeless all the time. It's really good times. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. My goodness. <laughs> it wow. ended up being a nightmare. What year was that? Oh, this is way back in the day. We're talking 1997. Okay. So I'm in my, what was I, 27. And uh, we we went off on this thing and we were meant to be doing a book. My partner was a photographer and he wanted to make a book of this incredible place that we were going through. It's the most beautiful desert I've ever been in and I've run a lot of deserts. Um, So it was an incredibly beautiful place. But he wanted me to help with the photography. And the leader of the expedition, his name was Elvis, and that was his real name, and he was a Yugoslavian guy uh, back in the day, was Yugoslavia, a survival expert, and he was the leader of the expedition. And he was like, hey, leave her alone, man. Like, she can't can't help with the photography, setting up tripods, and keep up with us, because we have to cover 45 kilometers a day regardless. So just, you know, leave her alone. So these two alpha males basically over the next couple of days had a big to-do over the way that I was being treated. And I was sort of like, this was my normal. I was used to that type of uh, um, being treated that way. And so I was like, oh, this is not normal, you know. Hmm. <laughs> Someone's actually standing up for me and that's not okay. And, or, you know, like all this sort of thing going on. It culminated on day four we were in dire straits because we were really dehydrated. So we were all very short-tempered, irritable, as you can possibly imagine. It was pretty pretty hardcore. So the boyfriend ended up spitting the dummy and having a big fight with Elvis and then with me and then saying, right, that's it, the relationship's over. You can stay with them and I'm off. So he abandoned me basically in the desert, with the other, left me with the other two guys, but left me. <laughs> after a five-year relationship, and I started to fall to pieces, right? 
as you do when your relationships break up. And I, you know, I loved him. He was my first relationship, my first serious relationship. So, and he looked like Brad Pitt. So, you know, that helped. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so I, I started to fall to pieces. And then I suddenly realized, you know, hey, I can't fall to pieces here. I'm in the middle of the living desert. This is dire straits. You might not get out of this one. You better pull yourself together. And you owe it to the other guys not to cause any more stress. And so I pulled myself together and I really learned in that moment to sort of compartmentalize what I had to do versus my emotional situation and to put all of that stuff to the side so that I could actually get through. And, you know, the other guys were looking at me like going, oh, my God, we've got an hysterical woman here. What are we going to do now? You know, <laughs> this is not great. And so I said, hey, guys, you're not going to have any problem with me. Let's just, you know, get on with this and, and do it. And, of course, I was worried about the, the, the boyfriend, whether he was going to survive or not, because, you know, out there alone in the desert, all it takes is one twisted ankle and you're gone. Hmm. And I didn't know whether we were going to make it either. And I had to really just separate myself and let that go and just focus on the mission. Um, in a very long story short, because that was a, a, you have to read my first book, Running Hot, for that story. But um, I did survive, obviously, I'm here. <laughs> um, but I did some, you know, major damage to my body and my kidneys. It took me a couple of years to recover from that uh, physically, but emotionally, it took me a lot longer to recover from it. And mm. it was a low point in my life. When I got out of that desert, I mean, the desert was incredible and beautiful, amazing what I just achieved, uh, but I was also absolutely in a really bad space um, emotionally and physically. It took me a long time to recover. And so I ended up getting out of that relationship. It took me uh, another couple of years actually to get out of it because it turned nasty. But this was a turning point where I was like, this is not okay. And I'm not going to be treated like that again. And I'm going to start to stand up for myself. It took me a long time to actually get there. But that's when I started to, to move towards that. And I wasn't a runner. You know, I'd done jogging and things for fitness before, but we'd mainly been trekking and cycling and that type of thing. But a couple of years later, and I'm out of the relationship, and I'm reading in this magazine about this race called the Marathon de Sables, which is a, a very famous ultramarathon in Morocco. And back then, it was the only thing going. And I read about this, and it was touted as the toughest race on earth back then, right? And I'm looking at the distances, and I'm going, hang on a minute, I reckon I could do this. <laughs> I've never run a marathon or anything like that, okay? But this was 240 kilometers across the Moroccan Sahara. You know, you're carrying your backpacks, but you get nine liters of water a day. You've got support from doctors and whatever. And I thought, hang on a minute, I reckon I could do this. So I signed up for it. And that was uh, the beginning of the end, as they say, really, because I did this event and it was just absolutely mind-blowing to be surrounded by 700 other runners from all around the world doing crazy things, you know, like on this big mission together. And it was hard, but it was the same distance as I've done in the Libyan desert, but I didn't have 35 kilos. I only had like a 10 kilo backpack or so. I got nine liters of water a day. I mean, oh gosh, you know. And you didn't have the weight of a terrible relationship. <laughs> exactly. And I'm surrounded by all these positive, amazing people telling me I'm great, right? What's not to love? And then at that point in my life, I needed that because hmm. I had no confidence and I needed that support. And, and I just fell in love with ultramarathon running, you know, because I, I did that race and I was actually really good and I was in the top five for a while. And then I was like, wow, I'm not too bad at this stuff, you know, and I've been told that I was useless and hopeless. And so I'm like, huh, 
I'm not that bad. You know, I reckon I can keep going at this. So then I got addicted, of course, and then I was one after the other after the other, and the, the rest is sort of history, as they say. So that's how I got into it. So I know that you were the first Kiwi woman to do the Badwater Ultramarathon in Death Valley here in the United States. Was that the point when you met Dean Karnazes for the first time and kind of started developing more relationships in the ultra running community? Yeah, actually, I met Dean for the first time um, over in New Zealand. He was here doing releasing his Ultramarathon Man book. And um, because I was an ultra runner, they decided I had to interview him for t- television, right? So I, I went to meet him and I was just blown away by him. And he was just so f- nice and friendly. And and actually on the back of that, I was talking to his publishers and I was telling them my story. And they go, well, we need a book from you. So I ended up with two book contracts on the back of that, thanks to Dean. Um, <laughs> so that was really mm-hmm. interesting. So I've run, running hard and running to extremes. And then I yeah went over to Death Valley and saw Dean over there as well and, and got to actually meet Dave Goggins as well, you know, another crazy dude who I was just like, wow, you know, um, starstruck by all these these amazing ultra runners that you'd sort of read about and you're standing on the start line with them, you know, and it was pretty, pretty cool. And Death Valley for me was at that point in my life, so this was 10 years after the, the Libyan desert, so to speak, or 11, 12 years, and I've been living in Austria. I've lived there for 14 years. And um, I'd just come back. My marriage to another guy had just fallen over, another ultra marathon runner from Austria. And I'd just come back to New Zealand. I was in a bad way again. <laughs> I'd lost everything, my, my, the country, my business, my house, my husband, everything. And mm. I was 38 years old. And then I got into that race, right? And I was like, how the hell am I going to get to this race? And I wanted to race that particular race for forever. Because one of the things that the boyfriend that I'd uh, done the Libyan desert with and, and all that, he'd actually cycled through Death Valley in the middle of summer. And he'd, you know, telling me how amazing he was because he'd cycled through Death Valley in the middle of summer. And then when I heard that there was an ultra marathon through the Death Valley, I was like, well, I have to do that because that would be like, you know, a big tick in the box. And if I could get through that, then I would really know that I've arrived, you know, that, I mean, the guy was long gone in my life, but it would be a, a big sort of, you know, I, I am not useless. So <laughs> I found a way to get to that race. I managed to get sponsors. I got a team. I had 2020 come and film me over there. Um, and it was just, you know, pure passion and sharing that this vision with people. And they were like, crikey, this is a crazy race. We'll support you to get there. So my hometown got it behind me and got mm. a lot of sponsors and got over there. Did that race and it was just the most amazing. <laughs> Again, one of those key points in your life where this is just life-changing. And it was just super exciting to finish that. I mean, for those who don't know, Death Valley, um, Badwater Ultra Marathon, it's 135 miles and, you know, hottest desert on earth and pretty damn cool place to, to run. Well, not cool, hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, I did that actually twice. So I did it the first year and, you know, I didn't win anything. I was in the top 10 woman, I think. Um, but, you know, it did pretty well. And it was just absolutely amazing. At a time in my life when I was rebuilding who I was and what I was doing in my life and my businesses and everything else, it really got me back into life again mm. and rebuilt me because I was, you know, in a pretty depressed state <laughs> prior to going to Death Valley. And, um, yeah, so that was, in a nutshell, running Death Valley. So I did that uh, in 2008 and 2009. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So what is it about the desert that keeps bringing you back? Uh, you ran across Libya, you ran across the Sahara, 
Badwater, Death Valley. You were on that yep. Desert Runners movie. What What is it about the desert that appeals to you so much? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I've done over 2,000 Ks in the Sahara, done the Arabian, the, the, the Tunisian, the Moroccan, the Libyan, Niger, Jordan, Gobi Desert, Australia, uh, <laughs> Death Valley, mm. obviously. It, it's one of the reasons I did deserts was they were hot and dry, and I'm an asthmatic. Um, so I've been a you know severe asthmatic in my childhood. I was in and out of hospital all the time. I'm not good in the cold, and I'm not good in the mountains. So I had never had any talent. I couldn't run fast, but I, I had a really strong mind. My, my mindset is really if I set myself something to do, then I you know usually get there or die trying sort of attitude. And so deserts were a better place for me to run because I didn't get the asthma attacks as bad. So that's one of the reasons why I did it. And then I, I'm pretty good in the heat, which I don't know why, but I, t- I tend to be okay in the heat or handle the heat better than some other people. So that's one of the reasons why um, there were so many deserts. And one of the reasons why I didn't do a lot of the trail mountain races, because what I found is like, you know, if you're running up really steep trail mountain races, and I have done some, but... I was never that very good at those. So that was one of the reasons why so many deserts. But I never let my asthma be an excuse not to do things. I just found ways around that obstacle, if you like. And I was pretty lucky in that my parents, when I was a kid, and even though I was such a severe asthmatic, um, they didn't mollycoddle me. I was out there in the cold and the rain and swimming in the ocean and, you know, doing all those sorts of things that you should be doing. And I think that was great because it was like, you know, yes, you've got asthma, deal with it, carry on, you know, find a way around it. You know, if it's a cold day, wear a scarf. If it's a, you know, whatever was required to be having a, a normal sort of functioning life. And I think that mentality was like you're not getting any special treatment because you're an asthmatic was the best thing they could have done for me, really. Well, it sounds like, you know, some of the challenges that you've had to overcome through the years, whether the asthma, I read somewhere that you broke your back, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the relationship, the abusive relationships, it sounds like all those things, you know, even though you'd never wish them on anyone have kind of come together to help you develop more mental toughness. And I think that's a huge key for people um, in long distance running or whatever challenge they choose to take on. So maybe you could share some tips with us on how to develop more mental toughness. Yeah, that's a, this is so key, Angie. I think you, you don't, especially for ultra running, you don't need to be talented. You, what you need is a strong mindset that you can do this and it's about breaking massive goals down into tiny wee steps. Um, at one point I did, for example, like I ran through New Zealand, which is, um, I don't know what it is in miles, but it's like 2,250 kilometres. Wow. So what's that, 1,500 miles or something like that. Um, and I did this in 42 days and actually after reading uh, the Dean Canassus's book on 50 marathons in 50 days, so I went in 52 and 42. Nice. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but it wasn't, I didn't have to travel like he did in between states. So, And I was raising money for Cure Kids. And this, when I, when I stood on the start line of that event, I was like, had a panic attack and I was like, oh my God, what the hell was I thinking? Because I've been so busy with the prep that I hadn't been like, you know, how the hell am I going to run this? You know, right. this was the biggest thing I'd ever taken on. And I had a bit of a panic attack on the start line. And I went over to my mum and I was bawling my eyes out. And, you know, you've got the media, you've got sponsors, you've got like crew, you've got, you know, oh, and I just had this panic attack. It was like an elephant sitting on me. 
And my mum said to me, hey, hey, you don't need to run the 2,250 today. You need to get to that power pole up there. That's what I want you to focus on. Wow. You've got to get through the first half an hour. That's all you need to think about right now. And that's been like the best advice I've ever had because that taught me like whatever the challenge, however big, massive, scary, audacious goal, if you break it down into what do I need to do right now, what is the next single step that I need to take, then then you take that one and you take the next one and you keep your focus close when you're in when you're really struggling. So it's great to have the big audacious goal, but what you need to do is to keep your focus in close and tight when you're when you're struggling. So, you know, we've just gone back into lockdown over here and hopefully it'll be a short lockdown. But we're just I'm just focusing on, okay, what do I have to do today to get through today? Not, oh my God, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're all in big, you know, trouble. There's a tendency to do that in our brains. You know, there's a tendency to search out negative stimuli and, you know, that's the way our DNA is sort of set up because we were set up to look out for danger, but that can sabotage us as well. So if you pull your focus in and just try to keep focused, and you'll know this, Angie, when you're in the middle of a race and it's a grueling race and you're really, really struggling, if you start thinking about how far you have to go, you're in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. (laughs) (laughs) but if you can just focus on like okay that power pole up there or that 100 meters up there or I'm going to take a a quick walking break at that point you know whatever it is to get you through that time to sort of trick your mind into keeping going I think is, is a key aspect of it and then I think the other big thing is resilience like you're going to get knocked down in life that's just being a human. You're going to have things come at you. You're going to have problems. Um, learning to get back up when you've been hit is the most important thing. And it and it gets harder the more you've been hit sometimes. But um, the, you don't have a choice. You know, you have to get back up and get back on the horse, so to speak, when you fall off or you have to get back up. You you cry, you feel the pain, you experience the, the disappointment or whatever the case may be, but then invariably the next day you get up and you fight on. That has to be the way that you approach life because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to head down a path of being mentally unwell or not being able to cope or not being able to go on or not achieving what you you know you possibly can. My latest book is called Relentless, and there's a reason why it's called Relentless because it's about being persistent and being resilient, getting back up when you're hit and then keeping going no matter how hard things get, just taking one more step. Yeah, so true. Speaking of your newest book, uh, I was going to ask you if you feel that all of the running that you did, all the ultra running, the long distance running prepared you in some way for the ordeal that you went through with your mom. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. T- tell Thanks listeners for... that story. Yeah, I'd love to share the story. So five and a half years ago, my mom had a massive aneurysm, which is a bleed in the brain. And my mum has always been my rock, you know, my <laughs> one I always ran to when I was in trouble and just a wonderful mum. And so this just blew me to pieces. She was 74 years old. 
um, we got that call, you know, get up the hospital, mum's collapsed, we don't know what's wrong with her. And we had a uh, an unfortunate medical misadventure from the get-go where the doctor ignored the ambulance driver who said to the doctor, I think she's having a stroke or an aneurysm or something in the brain. And he ignored us, uh, ignored him and said, I think she's having a migraine and just left her with some painkillers yeah. in the corner in the emergency room. And um I didn't know what to ask for. And, you know, we were all taught the doctors know what they're doing and they're the experts and don't make a fuss and, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I just sat there waiting with her and realising that she's in extreme, extreme pain. Like my mum is not a drama queen. Like she, and this was not a migraine. And I didn't know what to ask for. And I was really just caught short, you know, like didn't know what the heck was going on. And so I ended up after six hours, I rang a friend of mine who's a paramedic and she'd crewed for me in Death Valley and we'd run in Egypt and places together. And she knew my mum really well. And I said, please come up here. The doctors are ignoring me and I don't know what to do. And I know she's in trouble. So she came up and she took one look at mum and knew that she was having a stroke or an aneurysm. And so she went to the doctor and said, get her a CT scan now in really no uncertain terms. And so he finally relented after six hours and we had a CT scan that came back with blood right throughout the brain. And they didn't think that she was going to survive much longer. You know, the, the gold standard is to get them into surgery within an hour of such an event if you want a good chance at survival. And she was 74. She'd been already there for six hours. And then we live in a little regional town. And so we had no neurological unit down here or no surgeons. We had to get an air ambulance and it was another 12 hours before we ended up back in uh, actually getting to our uh, one of our main hospitals in Wellington and getting her into surgery. So it was 18 hours total before she went in and at mm. any time she could be dying, you know. And at this point I went, like, I have completely, you know, screwed up here by not being pushy enough and not asking enough questions and, you know, just trusting. And so from that point on I read, okay, I, I am not going to be that person again. I'm going to be hypervigilant. I'm going to research. I'm going to study. If I get a chance to, you know, get her back and I was praying to every God there was that, I, you know, if I whatever – I would do whatever it took if they'd give me a second chance with her. And the surgeons did a brilliant job and they put a stent in and they start to drain the blood. And then for the next three weeks, she was in critical condition as um, when you have blood and brain matter mixing, it um, causes vasospasms, they're called, in different parts of the brain. And you can be in and out of coma and you're losing more and more of your brain over that period of time and huge inflammation in the brain. So you don't know what you're going to get or if you're going to survive. And so for the for the next three weeks, they were fighting for her life. And she was in and out of a coma and she was having these vasospasms and she was losing more and more of her brain function. Wow. And so... In this time, I'm just studying everything I possibly can and trying to keep up with the doctors and the jargon and the lingo and pushing for her to get the resources she needed and so on. And after three weeks, she she came out of the coma and she stabilised, but she had hardly any higher function left. She had massive brain damage at the age of 74, you know. So she had no ability to control any functions in her body or any idea who she was or what she was. She was basically like a baby, yeah. um, had no idea I was a daughter or, you know, any of that type of thing. And at that point, they said, well, we'll transfer her back to New Plymouth. She's stabilized, um, but, you know, she's in deep, deep trouble here. She's probably not going to do anything. She was in three months in the hospital up here. In this time, I'm, I'm studying, like, no tomorrow. Like, <laughs> I'm going through medical school, basically, <laughs> when I'm not, when I'm not sitting by her. Crash course, yeah, <laughs> and everything – 
brain rehabilitation and stuff. And the first thing that I picked up was that I had noticed in her, because I've done races at altitude in the Himalayas and things, we'll get to that later, but I had had altitude sickness and I was seeing in her um, a proliferation of bacteria in, in different or- orifices um, and that's a sign of, of a lack of oxygen. And so I, I said to them, I think she's got sleep apnea. I want a sleep apnea assessment, which is when you stop breathing at night, right. sleep apnea. And because she was sleeping sort of 20 hours a day, because obviously she, you know, massive neural fatigue and inflammation, they basically said to me, no, we don't need a sleep apnea assessment. There's no reason why we should be doing that and that you can't have the oxygen because I wanted them to put, put her back on oxygen. And they wouldn't. And so I actually went and got an outside consultant and I smuggled him into the hospital one <laughs> night. And yeah, it was really popular up there, as you can possibly imagine. And um, we did the sleep apnea assessment and it came back severe sleep apnea and that she was stopping breathing hundreds of times a night. Her SpO2 stats, which is your how much oxygen is in your in your blood was down at around 70%, oh which is deadly. Like she would not have lived for many more weeks at that level. She was chain-stoke breathing. She was in deep trouble. And so that was my first win because once we had that diagnosis, we could put her on a CPAP machine, which is a, basically a machine that blows air down your, down your throat when you're asleep and mm-hmm. keeps you alive um, and, and keeps your oxygen levels up. And so after that, we started to see tiny, tiny little bits of improvement and she wasn't going backwards like she had been. And then I had a massive battle at the hospital because I wanted to take her home once once she was ready for release and she'd stabilised and everything. And they said, look, she's massive brain damage. She's never going to have any quality of life. She has no idea what she is or who she is or where she is. Put her in a home. She won't know the difference anyway. And I said, no way. I'm not leaving my mother in any home and nobody can care for her like her family. And if she's surrounded by her own things and her people, she will know on some level that she's loved and cared for and she, you know, that we could trigger memories by being around her things and I'm not leaving her. And we had this big battle and they wouldn't let me take her home because I was asking for just some help in the mornings and the evenings, caregivers, which they can provide. Um, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening is what I was fighting for. And um, they wouldn't do it because it meant that she stayed in their budget. In other words, Mm. um, if they put her in in an institution, she would be in someone else's budget and that's what they wanted. And so you you have to fight for the resources when you're in a hospital situation. And I'm pretty sure based on my um, learnings from many people overseas, it's no no different over where you guys are. Um, And so I ended up, taking my brother who looks like the rock um, and I brought him to all my meetings and then suddenly we got all the resources we needed and um, (laughs) he just sat there with me (laughs) while I argued and uh, we suddenly got what we needed, which was uh, amazing. And I, so the day I brought her out of hospital, I'd done all this research and I'd come across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And this is something that they use in dive accidents for the bends, but it's been proven to be very beneficial in lots of clinical studies for brain injuries. And there was a Dr. Harsh actually in America and Florida who had done a a book called The Oxygen Revolution. And I read this book and I studied his work and I studied his protocols and watched all these videos of patients. And I thought, oh, my God, this is something that can help her. Um, I'm going to get her hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So then I started to search, well, how do I get it? Now, we have it in our two of our major hospitals, but they wouldn't let me access it because they didn't believe it was beneficial for brain injury. And so I got turned down there. So what I did then, another obstacle, right? So 
I went to um, a commercial dive company of all places and I said, you've got a chamber, you know, for dive accidents when divers get the bends. Can I use it? This is my research. This is my situation. And these amazing people said, yep, you can have it. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll support you. Um, you have to get a legal medical waiver so that they're protected. And I said, yep, no problem. Sign what, whatever they wanted me to sign. And um, we took her down and we put her into this chamber and um, for 33 days we were there for an hour and a half a day doing this in this, you know, factory setting. Oh. You're putting her on a forklift to stick her in this big what looks like an LPG cylinder. Um, and people thought I was mad. Um, <laughs> but, that, but the guys didn't because they knew the power of this thing. And after 33 treatments, my mum started really respond and wake up is all I can say like she didn't get up and start walking or anything but she started to try to be she was using a couple of words she was trying to move her arms she was responding and so then I lost access to the chamber because it had to be taken off on a contract so another obstacle so I went mortgaged the house I bought a hyperbaric chamber I installed it in my house all of which were not easy and I started to put her in this in this thing Every day we did a protocol of 40 at a time and then a month's break because that was the protocol for her situation. And in this time, she started to respond, right, and started to recover little bits of, of function. And as she started to come back, then I had more to work with. So then I studied everything from functional neurology to epigenetics and functional genomics. And she was on a keto diet. I had her on every nootropic there was known to man. I basically played doctor and did everything I possibly could to stay one step ahead of her in her rehabilitation. Um, and it took me thousands and thousands of hours of retraining her brain right from the most basic movements like sitting without falling over to like how to put food into her mouth, how to chew, how to everything that basically you would teach from a baby. Uh, but you've got a 74-year-old or 75-year-old now who doesn't, you know, <laughs> respond like a, a baby does. But slowly but surely, and this is where being an ultramarathoner really helped because, you know, I'd taken on big challenges before where people told me this is impossible and you can't do it. And that's what I was being told on constantly with mum. And I was like, I'm just not listening to anybody who tells me I can't. I'm going to find people who tell me I can, and this is the next step. And that's what I did. I got all these amazing – and this is where my podcast was just wonderful. So I have a podcast called Pushing the Limits, and I was managed to get top scientists and doctors and things and to come and cheer on my podcast. And selfishly, I was using all that information for my mum, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> to keep her to keep her going. And I stayed one step ahead of her, basically. You know, every time she, we would get to a new level, there'd be a new problem and there'd be a new situation. Like when she started to be able to stand on a walker and move forward, but she was like a rag doll. If, if you took any support away, she'd just collapse. So I had to teach all her whole vestibular system. So I I learned about functional neurology and training the eyes and balance and you know all of these things um and the upshot of it was it took me two and a half years but I got my mum back to full health wow full health full health that's like, amazing health. she's she has her driver's full driver's license she has her full power of attorney back she goes to the gym five days a week she attends art classes she's she's back full into life again um, wow. I still work with her every single day and we're now five over five years in I still train her like an athlete. Um, she has to do, you know, a whole lot of training every day. 
um, because now she's 80 and I'm trying to keep her there, you know, trying to right. keep her function. She's fitter and better in a lot of ways than she was prior to the injury. We're still rebuilding a few things like her. Um, she lost a lot of her flexibility because of being in a wheelchair for so long. Um, so we're still working on things like that. But she basically has her life back, you know. She's fully functioning that's, that's in, in society. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing story. And if I hadn't been an ultra runner who was used to grinding out training day in, day out when you don't see any results, because you guys know what that, that's like. You train and you train, you think, oh, why am I not getting any better? You know, like, <laughs> and you just do it. You know, like, you just know that you just have to carry on. And that mentality was what you needed when you're dealing with a massive brain injury because you would have months with no gains whatsoever mm. and then you'd break through to a new level and that's the way it happens with with ultra marathoning as well that you you can be training 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 you even going backwards half the time and then all of a sudden you'll get a breakthrough and you'll get to the next level and the next level and be able to run further or faster or whatever your goal is and it was the same with her and so I knew that pattern of plateaus next level keep going no matter what just keep going. <laughs> and when I hear you talking about this amazing comeback for your mom, I mean, literally a comeback from death almost, mm -hmm. it just reminds me of the resilience of the human body and how, you know, no matter what age you're at, when you decide to start taking your health and your fitness seriously, that you can, you know, if you're relentless like you were, you can make gains and you can really change your health for the better. Absolutely. And this is now my passion in life is to help people take control of their health and be in that preventative space. So this is, you know, changed my whole focus. Obviously, I'm not doing the ultra marathons currently because of well, I've just spent five and a half years looking after her. And unfortunately, I also lost my dad to a battle last year. Mm. Um, and this has made me very much, I want to keep people out of our hospitals. I want them to have control as best as we can. Obviously, there's still so much to learn and, and do, but we can take a lot more control than we think. And also, like, I'm in my 50s now, and I want to be epically, functionally fit at 150. And I think that that's not an impossibility given the, the rate of technological change and development and research that's going on right now. I think that we have the potential to live a lot longer and with a lot more function, put it that way. And I think we're living in the most exciting time. Um, so if I can keep it together now, I reckon within 10 years' time, we're going to be able to reverse aging. I like the sound of that. <laughs> oh, mate, hang around with me for a bit and I'll just, I'll fill you <laughs> in on all the details. It's exciting stuff. I mean, I study three or four hours a day in this space because I'm passionate about it. And it's now what I do for a job is help people with health journeys, difficult health journeys, or people who are wanting high performance or elite athletes or wherever people are and who don't want to just rely on one pharmaceutical after another because that is all you're going to get normally when you go with a particular issue and just the way that the medical model is set up with you know you go to your GP and you get 10 minutes or 15 minutes if you're lucky and then it's on to the next one and no matter how brilliant your doctor is how the heck can they really get to the bottom of issues in that period of time of course they're going to grab to the you know what they've learned and I think there's just too much emphasis, not to say that pharmaceuticals are bad because, God, we need them in certain circumstances, 
but they're not the only thing. And with lifestyle interventions and prioritizing your sleep and understanding circadian rhythms and optimizing your nutrition and optimizing your exercise, and that includes not overtraining, by the way, guys and girls, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of these things, we can really influence what happens with our biology and, and keep ourselves well. And I study genetics and epigenetics, and that's one of my passion areas, and understanding the differences between each of us, that we're all very unique and that's what we help with now through our programs is helping people understand their genetics and then optimize their environments to those genes so that they get the best results and you're not it's like getting a user manual for your body you know it's like eliminating the whole trial and error part of things like I'll give you a quick example like my husband I used to make him get up and do a CrossFit workout at 5 a.m in the morning now when I did epigenetics I realized that that was a disaster for him and he'd been getting putting on weight around the middle and was feeling crap and stressed and his serotonin levels were out of whack and when I understood genetics with his genes getting up at that time was when his hormones were doing their regulation so he should be in bed asleep because I was basically smashing his testosterone which is not a good thing for a wife to do um and then and then um it was the wrong type of exercise for his body so he can't replace his ATP his his energy production doesn't replace in the cells as quickly as it does in mine so I'm suited to CrossFit type workouts back-to-back high intensity he's not he's much more suited to long slow endurance based activities and then um, he should be lifting heavy weights because he's got good uh, joints for heavy weights and not the back-to-back medium type of weights that I was doing. So he was having a big spike of cortisol early in the morning by doing that CrossFit workout and that, that was causing weight gain around the middle and it was stressing him out and ending ending up being in that fight or flight state for the rest of the day. So you can have people who are going to boot camp in the morning and they're, they're disciplined and they're thinking, wow, I'm going to be like super fit. And, and it doesn't work for their genetics. If I take a group of, say, 20 people on a boot camp and we're doing it at 5 a.m. and we're eating six times a day and we're doing we're all eating the same food, I tell you what, I'll have five people who will lose weight and get fitter. I'll have five people who doesn't do anything for and I'll have another group who are going backwards and getting injured and putting on weight from that program. So mm. once we understand that, then we can actually make specific to your needs and that's, you know, and, and understanding your chronobiology, what time of the day, what to do what, when you're going to get the best cardiac output, when you've got the best coordination, the best strength output, all of these things that we now have that information for. It's just gold. It's absolute gold. Sorry, I got on my bandwagon there. <laughs> I want to ask you one follow-up question about that. Admittedly, I don't know much about epigenetics. How does someone even get started? What does it involve? What, is there like a, a genetics test that one takes? Yeah, so um, I basically use two different programs. My base framework for uh, is, is something called epigenetics, and this is um, a platform that's been developed by hundreds of scientists, not me, <laughs> and um, with some pretty advanced algorithms behind it. And basically, this is an online assessment. So you do, um, it takes about 45 minutes. You do all these measurements of your body um, things like, the length of your jaw, is your ring finger longer than your index finger, uh, the length of your foot. Everyone's like, looking at their hands right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you a lot of actually about what hormones are in play. You know, all of these things that, that give the body part ratios and stuff. 
Um, and that gives the scientists information about what genes are in play. And also, this is where the epigenetics, epi meaning above genes, how is your environment currently expressing those genes? Because we can turn genes on and off. Like we have a certain amount of genes that are fixed, like your eye colour and your hair colour and things like that. But most genes are turned on and off depending on what we do with them. So if I walk into a freezer and I start shivering, I've just turned that gene on. If I walk into a sauna and I and I start sweating, I've turned another lot of genes on and I've caused a cascade of events within my body, right? So when you know what is the optimal for your genetics, you're empowered. So this takes about 45 minutes. You get that information instantly. You don't have to even send off a DNA sample for that program, for another program you do. But that's all you, yeah, that's basically it. And then okay. you get all these this information and reports. And then as a coach, I help you interpret those results and put them into your life so that if we're building it into a running plan, then you can optimize it for your specific you know, running goals, or if you've got a health issue that you're dealing with, or, or whatever the case may be, or if, if you want to know what your predispositions are, you know, like, uh, do you have any cardiovascular predispositions, or methylation problems, or detoxification problems, or things that you need to know about so that you can take the right supplements, the right nutrition, or, or the right lifestyle interventions. So it's, it's a very comprehensive program, and it's, uh, really, it's a real game changer. Looking back over your career as an ultra runner and also looking back on what you went through with your mom and just immersing yourself so deep and, you know, the science and, and strategies to get her healthy again, like what would be some of your tips that we can leave listeners with when it comes to, you know, improving their health? Yeah, I think the first thing is take ownership of your health. Don't give it up to any one party. Don't yeah. give it up to anybody else. Do your own research, get opinions, listen, you know, and there are great resources now on the internet. You have access to PubMed, you have the latest in clinical studies, you have some brilliant podcasts with professors, you know, like you can get top quality information. There's a lot of crap on the internet too, so be careful. Um, but don't let that discourage you from, from doing your own research and making your own mind up about things. And then I think the other thing is when people tell you there is no way out, you know, like you've got a terminal illness or you've got this disease that nobody can cure, don't take that as being the gospel. Hmm. Take that as being that person doesn't know. I'm going to go and find out if anyone else knows. And sometimes there yeah. isn't. We're all going to die of something, right? right? I mean, I lost my father last year and, I, you know, I put everything into that battle and I was stymied in the hospital because they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. And he was in a critical care situation, so I had no rights. Mm. Um, so I know, I know what I'm talking about. But take as much control as you possibly can so that you don't get into those situations. And, of course, having lived through these problems, um, I'm very passionate about that. And I'm not against the medicals. And, God, you know, we need them. Like, they're just brilliant. The, the sacrifices, the work they do, you know, they're amazing. But there are limitations and just be mindful, be hyper vigilant and do your research and find answers when you don't know. If you're feeling something, then go and attack it and don't put your head in the sand. This is why being in this, you know, finding out about your genes and finding out of what you've got is really, really important. And I think the last thing is just be relentless, like my title of my book, Relentless, you know, keep going no matter what. And 
fight till the end, never, ever give up because you just don't know if you can beat the odds because sometimes you can. And that, I mean, my podcast is called Pushing the Limits for a reason, you know. <laughs> you, you Sometimes you can push the limits and you can beat the odds. And, and we have with mum. And, you know, by the same token, I, I lost my dad. So I know loss and I know winning. And my dad would want me to keep fighting for the stuff that I was fighting for him for. But yeah, in, in general, guys, take control of your own health, look after yourself, and hopefully you'll live long and prosper is, is, is my goal. That's right. I'm doing the Star Trek fingers right now, live long and prosper. <laughs> well, we, we really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your passion and the research and the knowledge that you've gained through just being relentless and overcoming so many challenges. Thank you so much, Andy and Trevor. It's been absolutely brilliant to be on your show. And if anybody wants to find out or, or ask me anything, if you've learned anything or watch any of my documentaries or my books or anything, if you can head on over to lisatamati.com, I'd appreciate seeing you over there and, and having you reach out or listen to the podcast. Yeah, and hopefully uh, Angie and I will get over to New Zealand one of these days, run a trail marathon, and maybe we'll get to meet you in person. Wow, wonderful. I have a race that I grounded and founded out here called Northburn 100. There's a, there's a big challenge for you. That's you a go. really big, scary race. Look at that one. We'll have to start training, and then hopefully by then, you know, all the lockdowns will be over and we'll be able to come oh. over. Yes, please. Yes, please. Hey, take, take care, guys, and thanks so much for having me on your show. Thank you. Hey, Trevor back here again. I'm still at the hotel room, actually sitting under a blanket to help with the sound deadening so I can record this. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lisa. Check out her podcast, Pushing the Limits. We will link to it from our website. Now we have a very juicy tip for you about healthy snacks because we all know that if we don't have healthy snacks in the house or with us, uh, if you're like me, you tend to just reach for whatever's available, which sometimes is not too healthy. So here's a question from a busy mom and she wants to hear suggestions for healthy snacks and how to avoid eating the unhealthy stuff. And to help us answer this question, we're joined by our friend Angelo Poli from MetPro, the metabolism expert who has helped just thousands of people. He's worked with a lot of top athletes, but also just everyday runners. So here's that question from Berenice. This question comes from Berenice, and she says, I always feel motivated when listening to your podcast. She says, your enthusiasm, humor, education, and topics help me get back into running after my first and second babies. I would love to learn about quick, practical snacks for a full-scheduled working mom of two trying to get back to quick-paced running, please. All right. I know, Angela, you love, you love talking about snacks, so this is a, <laughs> this is a great question. I, I love snacks. <laughs> So first of all, it's totally normal, totally normal. And guess what? You're going to be right back hitting PRs. You will be. Just stay consistent. Your body's going to go through a normal recovery phase where you're ramping back up because when you when you were pregnant, you were not putting in the mileage that you likely were before you were pregnant. And so that's a very, very normal cycle for your body. But yes, getting back to your consistent nutrition, good snacks, fueling throughout the day, all of that is gonna help your energy, recovery, and is gonna help put back that mileage time. So some snacks. Uh, snacks that I like are going to be simple, portable, and low perishability. Also, snacks that aren't super messy. 
Uh, it depends, because if you're home, you can probably get away with a little bit messy, because then it's not a thing. But one of my favorite is just peanut butter rice cakes, uh, apple and almonds. Uh, if you want something a little bit more energy dense, calorie dense, you could do uh, cashews and banana. If you want something that's going to really keep and you could literally throw it in your glove box, you can do a trail mix of some raisins and nuts and some turkey or beef jerky. Things like that keep really well. Uh, if you're not worried about perishability and you're, you have maybe some refrigeration, you could do something like yogurt or cottage cheese with berries. Super filling if your digestive system tolerates uh, dairy well. If you prefer more plant-based, I'm a big fan of small amounts of tofu and fruits. Um, it works together really well. Not mass quantities, but small amounts. It's one of my favorite snacks. So there's lots of little things like that that you can do. What, what I would probably challenge you to do is check your, your prepping skills. How are you doing in the prepping department? I would say challenge yourself to just 72 hours, prep all your snacks in advance. Have them done. I know it's easy to say, oh, well, it's easy. I can grab it on the go. But that's just it. We get busy and it's all the little things, the million little things in life that we don't expect that pop up that just make that putting a snack together just a little bit more inconvenient and then we miss, we're less consistent. Have mid-afternoon snack. Just prep a snack for the mid-afternoons, have it ready to go. And then if you're home, it's already done. But if you do have to head out of the house for anything, you just grab it in your little to-go box, your little go bag for nutrition, and you always have it with you. See if that doesn't make a difference. That plus consistency, you'll be right back to hitting PRs, I promise. So, Angelo, if you're traveling and it's the afternoon and you need a snack and you have to stop at a gas station and find something there in the mini mart, what would you go for? What would you grab? So actually, that, that's a great question. People ask me this all the time. What do I do when I'm on the road? And the answer is not fast food. The answer is look for a grocery store because you can go in most places. And, and I mean, you can't even do it at a gas station, worst case scenario. But usually if there's a gas station, there's also a, you know, a Safeway, a Raley's, a Ralph's, a Albertson's, a, any of those options. You know what they all have? They all have a deli section where you can go in and you can get some pre-made, either lean proteins, you know, sl cooked or sliced chicken, turkey, or tofu, or you can get a medley of beans, rice, quinoa, some veggie medleys that are already made together, or some cooked or grilled asparagus, cauliflower. You see them all the time. They're already made. And you know what it is? It's fast food. In fact, it's faster than the drive-thru in most cases. Mm -hmm. You just go in and you say, okay, I want half a pound of that, half a pound of that, half a pound of that. And don't worry, maybe if you're not sure how much to get, get a little too much. Because you can take it home, put it in the fridge, and your meal prep is done for the next few days. I work with a lot of execs that are like, oh, Angela, I don't have time to do meal prep. Or I don't have time for this. You know what I tell them? I say, hit the grocery store. Once you get two pounds of this vegetable already cooked, two pounds of that, and put it in your fridge and that your meal is prepped for the next three or four days. All you have to do is serve. 
works great. In fact, there's companies that make a good living off of taking those pre-made things, putting it on into a container and mailing them to you so you don't <laughs> have to do it. You can actually do this yourself. So if you want to take it to the next level of hardcore, carry utensils and a can opener, your own salad dressing. They sell salad dressings in little bottles. Why do I say that? Now I'm talking hardcore, travel tips, things like that. Even McDonald's isn't going to mess up a salad too bad. If you have your own, I know I said that on on record, if you have your own dressing, right? And so a lot of my hardcore <laughs> clients are actually, they have their favorite dressing that they can just bring with them in a little container. You know why the can opener is even if you have you don't have a grocery store with a deli section, you're really kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel for options. You can go in and you can get a can of green beans, a can of chicken. And if you have a can opener, you're good to go. Although nowadays everything's pop top. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not even an issue. But I have a surgeon, one in particular that I work with that he has an issue. He gets called into a surgery and there he doesn't know how long he's going to be. It could be three hours, it could be six hours, it could be eight hours. So you know what we did for him is we had him start making brown rice bowls in advance where, you know, I mean, this isn't a gourmet meal. We're not talking about this your day to day, but it's a strategy on the go. So he would stuff a bunch of brown rice in it. He put his grilled chicken or black beans in it. And then even some canned, I know you can get organic. It's not the greatest thing in the world, but you can get canned organic green beans. And they're soft and he would just pour it right on top and it would just be this medley of his protein, his brown rice and his green beans and he's put whatever dressing he likes on it. And if he only had literally three minutes to eat, he could go grab it, have a few bites of it, get at least some of his meal down, and it was even palatable cold. So this isn't the stuff you're going to need to do day in and day out, but there's always little strategies, tips, and tricks for on the go to save time for travel and for getting snacks in. All right. Well, that is it for this episode. Thanks again to MetPro and uh, Angelo for all the hard work. Get a free consultation over at metpro.co forward slash MTA. And if you like it, tell them we sent you. You'll get a big discount. Metpro.co forward slash MTA. That's it for this show. Get more podcast episodes and connect with us over at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. Until next time, remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my-